Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? Good day, friends. My name is Tyler Kleberger, and this is a podcast that has been titled Becoming Human. And this is because the intention of the show is to explore who we are and why we are here as humans and what it means to live as the most full version of ourselves. And especially this episode, and after what we've been exploring, I want to be very clear. I am not an expert in much, if anything at all. I'm just determined to keep pressing on this journey of being alive. I want to add to the conversation and help us all along on this journey toward whatever it is we're after. Which is interesting because today we are going to ask whether or not there is even a goal or destination or fullness that we can achieve. Is there any such thing as truth? Well, it's a complicated topic and lots of people have opinions on it. I'll give some of mine. But mostly, I want us to explore this idea of truth, and that there are several different kinds. And as we've been talking about perspective and knowledge, you know, how ought limited, finite, myopic human beings use their incomplete knowledge to approach a thing like truth? And listen, you might not be interested in this, but you should be. Because whether or not there is truth ought to determine how you make decisions about everything you do. And... If there are multiple kinds of truth, it could be helpful to just understand what they are and how they influence the kind of things that you do every day. So that's where we are going. Is there any truth? And what does it mean then for being alive? And as always, I'm not much for playing the social marketing game. I'm really depending on people supporting and listening and engaging with the show because they want to. So if you enjoy this, or if you find it valuable or meaningful, please subscribe. I think that's what I'm supposed to ask. There should be a button to press on whatever platform you're listening on right now. And honestly, in the podcast world, it it doesn't matter. It does not matter how good or meaningful a show is. People only know what exists based on what they see in front of them. If you're willing to share this in any way and make it accessible to others, I'd appreciate it. And hey, keep the conversation going too. You can interact with me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram if you want. Um, And there's plenty of additional content and articles that you can find at tylerkleberger.com. But enough of that. No more disclaimers. 
Let's get into it. If you're one of those that has been following along, you're going, I thought you said we were going to talk about a specific word. Well, after the last episode, I really thought that we needed to dive into this topic. One, because I've hinted at it, and two, because I said the word ontology, and I never actually explained what that was. So, before we get to what I would maybe say is the worst kind of A word, we're going to hit this. And this episode honestly exists because I only think it's fair. You know, since we started talking about perspective and things like epistemology, you know, how how we know things and rationalism versus empiricism, rationalism being uh, using logic and, and mental activity to come to conclusions, empiricism using sensory observation and experience to come to conclusions, as I've been alluding to these concepts, it brings up this idea of truth, and I never really gave it the audience it deserves. And I noticed that this is something that people are really interested in. And here's also, I said no more disclaimers. Well, here's another disclaimer. Um, I am not an authority on this. In fact, everything I'm about to go into is like the base stuff that you can get most places, right? If you Wikipedia probably does a better job than I'm about to do. But this is something that people want to talk about. And people usually have really strict perspectives on, you know, they're all for absolute truth or, you know, everything's relative. And and they take hard positions on that. If nothing else, I hope what happens is we realize it's hard to take a hard position on this. But this is called ontology which is a, it's a philosophy about the nature of being or existence if, itself. So if epistemology is the nature of our ability to know things, then ontology is the actual nature of reality itself, apart from whether or not we can know what that is or even how we can know it. And, and these really are the two most important fields in philosophy, you know, ontology and epistemology. And, and one thing, real quick, for the nerds, I won't be addressing what is called theory of mind. And, and theory of mind is related to phenomenology. If you're into that stuff, you will find yourself going, well, in theory of mind, or, but in phenomenology, and yes, you're right. But I will be leaving that part out so that we can focus on the basic structure of truth And, you know, these last few episodes have honestly been my take on theory of mind. But anyways, here's the problem. I've mentioned that being honest about your perspective and map making and using both your mind and your experience can help you on the process of truth. And I brought up epistemological assumptions, you know, the the assumptions I have about how we can know things that will then determine what my take on truth is. And what do I mean by all of this, this process of truth? So let's think back to what we said about your perspective. Let's give an example. Let's say it is your perspective that not standing for the national anthem is completely unfounded and it's disrespectful. But someone else says that kneeling for the national anthem is the only appropriate response. I use this example because I'm guessing you've heard a lot of arguments on both sides. 
And if you haven't heard a lot of arguments on both sides, then you should consider, you know, hearing more arguments. Unless you like echo chambers, which we'll be getting more into next time. So if I were to ask, of these two perspectives, which is right and which is wrong, which perspective is true? How would you answer? Now, if you begin by saying, well, it might depend on which of the six argumentative approaches are being used, and then it would depend on whether or not each person is using a rule-based, a greatest good, or a teleological argument, then you, my friend, would make me quite happy. Thank you. And, and what this shows is that the answer to the question kind of depends on the perspective of the person. True according to what? True according to deontology? True according to consequentialism? True according to utilitarianism, teleological ideas, social situation? Are they trying to come up with a general principle for nation states? Or are they trying to speak to a specific context? It becomes pretty clear that with a lot of the examples we could look at, inquiring as to whether or not the thing is true isn't so simple. But let's not get so complicated here. Let's just ask, whose perspective is more right? Who's got the better truth here? That is a question that is wondering about objective truth. That is, assuming that there has to be something that is just true. And so in these statements, right, about the, the national anthem, one has to be true and the other has to be wrong. And if the only thing I've done so far is make you feel like this whole conversation is messy, then good. Because we do have, we have two issues here. First, how do we know which things are absolutely true? Is truth a thing? Is there objective truth? And second, how do we navigate what is true based on all of these things that get in the way? which is what we've been exploring over the last several episodes. How do we determine what is true? And is that even possible? You know, is certainty, are, are we capable of that? So that's the first real issue that we have to focus on when we're considering the idea of truth. But let's start now with the second issue. Coming to conclusions on truth require a variety of approaches. Some of these we've looked at in, in the conversation on epistemology so far, which is how do we know what is true? How are we capable of arriving at understanding and knowledge? And, you know, like we said last episode, generally there are two options, rationalism and empiricism. You know, we can use the mind, reason, logic, stuff that doesn't deal with the physical world or stuff that is based on the physical world and how you've experienced it. Your senses allow you to know things. You, you do experiments. You collect data. As human beings, we have this thing called consciousness, this awareness of our lives and meaning and existence. The, the fact that we even wonder about abstract ideas like truth and morality is a case in the point. And the problem is that neither rationalism or experience and empiricism, neither of them exist on their own. They depend on each other and they skew one another. But we can break down all of these other processes for arriving at truth. There's deductive reasoning versus inductive reasoning. You know, testing evidence found in the world and using general observation to come to a particular conclusion, that's deductive. 
or you can use specific observations to come to general theories. Inductive. So there's two more options there for approaching information and experience. Or, or you have the modes of reasoning, or the sometimes called the modes of persuasion, which is a common process that goes all the way back to Aristotle. Traditionally, there are three modes. You can use logos, which is the rational reasoning we, we just talked about, or in some cases, empirical data that's been through the scientific process. Or you can use ethos, which is the, the take on, you form an argument based on the credibility or authority of some other source. You know, a person, a sacred text, a tradition, something is valid because someone else affirmed it. Determining whether or not that source is valid requires a bit more work, however, and now you usually have to take that back to Lagos. But, and then there's pathos. And this starts getting into empiricism and experience, but pathos specifically references the emotional understanding you have of an experience. And usually to validate that, people look for some sort of Lagos. So you can tell that, you know, there's three modes. Lagos is, is the one that has the most uh, credibility in our culture, I assume. So think about this. Think about the most recent advertisement you saw on TV or online. What mode did they use? And, and honestly, the best marketing technique is to subtly use all three. And so you could pick out, you know, watch an advertisement, you could pick out which parts used which mode. Or, or the next time you mindlessly scroll through social media, could you name which form of reasoning or mode of persuasion someone is using in an argument? D do you know which you use when you make a point? Do you know why you are appealing to emotion to make an argument? Do you know when a pathos argument would be more appropriate than an ethos one? Do you mix up the approaches depending on the situation? Or do you, you know, primarily resort to just one? It's worth stating all of these are generally agreed upon to be fair game. There's no hierarchy either. They all have benefits. They all have shortcomings. These are just the various ways that people make arguments. What's not generally promoted is what happens you know, among people in our culture, where we convolute these different processes into a strange cocktail. You know, think about what you see on social media, or at least this is my experience of social media. If you were to pay attention, right, and actually mark out how people argue their perspective, not only can you determine, you know, which approach they're using, you might also notice how people act like they're using one form while actually using a different form. And it's usually because they don't know there's a difference. For example, one that I see a lot is that someone will use ethos, right? Appealing to a credible source as a way to say they are being factual, which is a Lagos argument. So this person who studies this thing said this, and it's therefore the logical fact. Or another one I see, using pathos, so emotive experience, as ethos, credibility. Because I experienced this, it must be objectively true. And, and this, this is a fair move to make, using your experience to add to the perspective. This is called epistemic privilege. Someone who has the privilege of experience something has grounds to speak to that thing. Now, 
it doesn't make you an authority on the subject and shouldn't be used as a replacement for Logos either. All of these are meant to work together. However, if I may, this one really grinds my gears. There's a statement that I've I've railed on this before that people use, and they usually use it because they're trying they're trying to sound smart and informed and objective. And sometimes I just want to tell people, why spend so much energy guessing and making stuff up when you could actually just know what you're talking about? Anyways, facts matter, feelings don't. What they are trying to say, I assume, is what I just mentioned. That just because you have a perspective on something that is formed by real, tangible, empirical experience through sensory observation, it doesn't mean that we should determine policy or rationalism on it. That's a fair statement, because there's three different modes here. What makes this statement problematic is that it is actually saying there's only one way to know things. Epistemologically, facts matter as a form of logos and rationalism. Facts as ethos should be considered, and even feelings are epistemologically valuable as a form of empiricism and experience. Further, feelings are unavoidable. And your feelings, no matter how objective you're trying to be, are influencing your facts and logos and ethos or whatever way you are claiming to approach knowledge. Psychologically, you can't even consider a fact through your cognition without it being prompted by some form of emotion, feeling, and experience. Usually, people say facts matter, feelings don't, simply as a way to affirm their experience or say that people depend too heavily on how they feel to make a point. And that's fair. We, We shouldn't only use pathos. Absolutely. But even when this phrase is used in genuine concern for the elevation of logos, it is vastly ignorant of the necessity and inescapability of multiple forms of reasoning and persuasion. Granted, somebody saying, well, I don't like this, isn't a great way to make a point either. But emotive empiricism is technically a way to reason and come to conclusions And no matter how much you want to take yourself out of the equation, it's consciously impossible to fully do it. So I digress. Sorry, sometimes like a soapbox magically appears under my feet. Don't know how that happens. The main issue here, and the thing I hope you got out of that rambunctious conversation, is that the issue isn't truth. The issue is the complex adventure of arriving at truth. And this is why before I even wanted to bring up anything like this, we took a lot of time to explore all of these different processes and how they interact. And and again, this comes down to this issue on consciousness. So before we can really go, is there a truth or not? We have to pay attention to our ability to even understand truth in the first place. And this issue that as conscious beings, having this awareness creates this cornucopia of this Pandora's box of all these things that are playing a role in how we even think about this in the first place. So now we still have to take on that question, though, on whether or not there is an objective absolute truth or, you know, more technically put, Is there an ontological reality to existence? 
is there something that undergirds all of this? And, and um, sometimes, you know, nerd moment here, this is what philosophers will refer to as something being a priori, something that comes and exists prior to our knowledge or experience or even being. But again, before we come to any conclusions on if that even exists, we do have to start with, are we even capable of getting there if it does? Let's say that there, there's absolute objective truth. Do we even know how to comprehend it? And again, this is the cornerstone of epistemology, that there's a difference between truth and our ability to wade the complex reality of comprehending that truth. We yearn for certainty, yes, but our limitations in intellect and lifespan and time and the fact that we can't be more than one place at a time and that our experience isn't shared with every single human being on earth makes us have to come up with lots of different ways to try to figure things out and come to conclusions on things, none of which, by the way, are capable of covering every single detail. This is the reason that Enlightenment philosophy is populated by the concern that certainty is elusive. The only thing we can do is use the various methods and approaches and concepts as much as possible and to their greatest benefit. But whether it's rationalism or empiricism or logos or ethos or pathos or the multitude of ways we come to conclusions and develop our perspectives, we just need, when we have this conversation on, on truth, we just need to admit that when it comes to human beings, we have a very low ceiling. Even if you appropriately combine all of these processes, at the end of the day, our capability for being certain is just a bit low. And this is what we emphasized last episode. Your observations will always be incomplete. Your attempts at rationalism will always be skewed by your experience. None of us have any semblance of perfect knowledge. None of us are working with all the information. And that's okay. Just don't pretend like you are. So I wanted to handle all that information first. Because when the conversation of ontology and objective truth comes up, some people are so quick to proclaim certainty that, that it's almost like they blinded themselves to how far away they actually are. When we talk about truth, it is good to begin by confronting our, our ignorance. And, and not, as, not as a critique, just as a human admission. Sometimes this superstition, superstition technically means making rash correlations between causes and effects that aren't fully fleshed out. But anyone who proclaims finality with stern ignorance to the epistemological chaos we just saw indicts that superstition is likely at play. The important component here, however, is what I brought up earlier. It's called epistemological assumptions. Whenever someone makes a claim, especially dealing with truth, they usually had to make an epistemological assumption in order to move on in the process of knowing, right? So if we're limited, if, if there's this finitude to us, in order for us to make a truth claim, we had to assume something along the way. Essentially, your social location, your experience, and your processing of the world is limited so in order to come to a conclusion on something, you have to make some jumps. You know, you have to make some interpretive leaps. For example, let's say 
someone who uses um, a rule-based approach would claim that, you know, what is good or right is based on the rules. Within that, there is an epistemological assumption about the rules that you'll have to agree on in order to agree with whatever larger premise, you know, that they're, they're trying to get to, which is, you know, the source of those rules is good and right. They've assumed that. And if you can't agree on that point, well, then you're not going to agree with the larger perspective on truth that they're offering. You've probably seen someone arguing about, you know, some moral issue and saying, well, because the Bible says, well, if, if I don't agree that the Bible has moral authority, then I'm not going to agree with whatever stance you're taking on that issue. How much better would the world be if we all had to just name our epistemological assumptions before we made some sort of uh, disclosure, you know? It would require us to know what they are first, which I, I don't know that many people do, but it also requires acknowledging that the epistemological assumptions are part of the deal. You know, honestly, I wish that people, you know, when beginning to make a point, would start by outlining their epistemological assumptions. It would take a lot of time to say something, but it would save us so much time having to endure the messy fallout and the disagreements that follow because we aren't acknowledging the primary factors and why we're disagreeing in the first place. And it's because our epistemological assumptions are different. When we talk about truth, we need to begin with this honest appeal to the human incapability to come to full conclusions on things. We have to start with our inability to fully conclude truth. That's my opinion here. Because our versions of reality are limited and minds are more finite than we sometimes wish to proclaim. And if we can just start there, then we can embrace that our, our only course of action is to see this as a journey, as I said, a process of getting as close to truth as you can. You set out with curiosity. You embark with questions, map making, if you will. You seek to understand the world as much as humanly possible so as to best live in it. And you do it again and again and again. This whole first almost half hour was simply to say that the issue in my mind is not truth. The issue is how we arrive at truth. If certainty isn't just some object you find and either have or don't have, then arriving at truth will be a process, and probably an endless one. So now we have to ask, is there even such a thing as truth? Now, there's a problem here. I, You may be th sitting here listening thinking, well, that's not fair. You said you were going to tell us whether or not there was truth, or at least I said I would give you my take on it. And I didn't. Because I think in this conversation, when we jump straight to absolute and objective truth versus subjective truth versus relative truth, well, we're missing one of the primary factors in even having that conversation. And it's whether or not we can even determine that. So in this conversation, I just wanted to point out how complicated it is. How many different factors are going into each of these conversations? All of the processes that we're using, all of which aren't complete. 
And so, please don't take this as, I've concluded that there is no truth. In fact, we're going to get into that next time. But for now, we just need to be honest when we talk about truth, that it's not, it's not so simple. And if we can do that, it might help our conversations. So yes, I started an episode on ontology and then went right back to epistemology. But I promise, next time, now that we've handled this groundwork, we can have a conversation on what truth is and, well, is there truth? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.